The former Human Services Minister Stuart Robert has taken the stand at the RoboDebt Royal Commission. In every interview, government ministers are expected to show confidence in the agenda of the government. There is no other way that the Westminster system operates. It's been one year since unprecedented floods inundated the streets of Lismore. And then here we are today and they've only got through a handful of applications so far and only made it a handful of, of actual buyback offers. The federal government is a step closer to shutting down the export of live sheep from Australia with the announcement of an independent panel to advise the federal government about how and when to end the practice. They went to the last election saying there would be no changes to superannuation. And we've now seen the first change, what I think will be many changes. What we're doing here is a very modest change to give less generous tax breaks for those who have superannuation balances above $3 million. It's <laughs> tough out here on the streets of Double Bay this morning, Carl and Sarah. You know, the community, they are counting their pennies. How are they going to pay for those almond lattes? They're going to have to sell some of the properties. What are you going to do? You're going to have to sell the second Mercedes? No, not the Mercedes. It's my third boat. My daughter's favourite. It's, it, it's grim. The rap. Yes, today we have two very special guests for the Friday Wrap. But I have to say, it's been way too long since we've spoken to these uh, apparently polarised economists, but listen out for them subtly agreeing with each other. Come on down. Judith Sloan, economist and uh, columnist with the Australian newspaper, and Richard Dennis, the director of the Australia Institute. Welcome to you both for the first time this year. Good afternoon. Let's dive right into the subject that I know has preoccupied many hours of thinking time for you both this week. The government changes to how we tax superannuation balances over $3 million. Judith, you've written extensively about this. I have to say you've done a great service to the nation by wading through and attempting to decipher the Treasury tax statements. You're questioning how the costs of the concessions and therefore the potential savings are calculated in the first instance. Yes, well, Andy, thanks for that. Um, look, I think the way to think about this is sort of in three parts. One is the economics of it, the economic rationale. Secondly, is the operational way in which uh, an economic policy decision is made. And thirdly, the political handling of it. And uh, I'm not sure this is actually an area that Richard and I will agree with. I know in the past it's been alarming, our degree of convergence. Um, <laughs> Tonight might be the first time. Okay, good. But, but can I just make, um, and maybe Richard will agree with me on this, which is a kind of what I'd call a political economy point, which was I think it was a mistake to release what we call the tax expenditure statement, uh, which is a requirement of a piece of legislation and a rather arcane document, I might add, with the um, announcement of this uh, decision to crimp the tax benefits for uh, large superannuation account holders because I think it set the hairs running. So people go and look at that uh, statement, which in a way they probably never looked at before, I might add, um, and look at the 10 biggest items. And that's where all the discussion of the capital gains exemption on the family home came about because that is the biggest item in that tax statement. Richard Dennis, agree or disagree and why? 
Oh, look, you know, I, I, I'm not sure what uh, what the Albanese government's political strategy is, but I don't actually think it's a bad idea to put information out there into the debate. And what the tax expenditure statement does for the first time, and I agree with Judith, it's a, it's a pretty arcane document that, you know, I think Judith and I probably quite look forward to, but uh, they've really spiced it up this time. <laughs> they've spiced it up. They've put in not just the uh, sort of wide range of tax concessions, that are available, but they've for the first time put in the breakdown of those tax concessions, for example, by income, just to make it really clear to everybody uh, that high income earners do very, very well out of tax concessions like uh, like the superannuation tax concessions. And I, I actually think that Labor are clearly not backing away from this. I, I think they're market testing right now. I think they're They've made a small change, uh, a modest change, admittedly a change they hadn't foreshadowed before the election, but of course, you know, the Morrison government never foreshadowed uh, JobKeeper. Uh, and I think they're, I think so far they'd be happy with how it's gone. The, the Liberals want to fight the next election on on looking after the owners of the third yacht. The 0.5%. Uh, Richard, one of the issues raised by the coalition, which seems to be gaining traction, is this problem of indexation. Some analysis out today found that up to half a million people will ultimately be captured by this policy change in the coming decades because of inflation. The Treasurer, for, for his part, has rightly pointed out that this could be addressed very easily by future governments. Do you, but do you think they should be dealing with this now or, no. or not? I mean, no, this is absurd. Uh, it's, it's like saying there's nothing in the budget uh, today that uh, puts anything aside to build the hospitals we'll need in 20 years' time. And there's no budget put aside today for the potholes that'll need fixing in 20 years' time. Uh, indeed, we haven't indexed uh, public servants' wages for the next 30 years. So uh, I think there's some real grasping at straws going on here. Uh, the government's quite, quite cleverly, quite deliberately said, look, we're just going to apply this to people with over $3 million and Let's be clear, half of Australians have got less than 300,000. Uh, this is a desperate effort to say, oh, but they're coming for the ordinary Australian. Well, $1.2 million uh, is, you know, they're sort of saying if you adjust for inflation over 30 years, it'll be down to $1.2 million. That's four times, uh, four times what most people are retiring with today. Judith Sloan, uh, Angus Taylor, Shadow Treasurer, was on the program earlier in the week. He was quick to point out this uh, open question about indexation. Do you think this is an important question for today? Well, it definitely is a political point. And yes, I think it's bad public policy not to index it. I mean, the irony is that we have the uh, super cap balance, which is the, the figure which is about to go to 1.9 million, below which people can get tax-free income. And that will actually end up converging with this 3 million. If you, I mean, and if you have high rates of um, inflation, it can be quite quick. I mean, I think the thing that I object to most strongly is this, that why would you legislate it in this term of government if you don't intend it to come in until next term of government? Wait until next term of government. Let the people talk. I mean, when when Costello and Howard said that they were going to um, bring in the GST, having said they weren't, they waited till after the election to bring in the legislation. And I think that... I mean, I'm not speaking as an economist, so I just think that would be um, an act of greater integrity than to bring it in now. 
if you don't in and and I mean it's not anticipated to come until 2025. Yeah, I mean, we get into the semantics about, you know, just like the Liberal Party had core and non-core promises, the Labor Party appears to have, uh, you know, uh, legislated and uh, non-legislated promises. I mean, Richard, is this... Is this a debate? I mean, again, Angus Taylor was wont to point out that this was definitely a broken promise, as you'd expect. Is it? Uh, look, if if they, I confess, I have no idea if they specifically ruled out ever changing superannuation ever. And if they did, how how reckless and irresponsible. We elect people to govern. Uh, and, uh, you know, the Liberal Party introduced the stage three tax cuts and legislated them, and they don't come in uh, until next year. So uh, I'm not too worried about... In. The first stage did, but why, why were yeah, they, they legislating for something? Them. Yeah, no, I, get, I accept that. But they did at least have to legislate the first stage. Yeah, Whereas this, I, I, this lot don't even have to legislate because it won't come until 2025. I think it's an extremely cynical... Um, uh, uh, decision and one that may, in fact, not be. You see, I think, Andy, I think the politics of this are a bit like this. You and I and Richard, we sort of follow within the, the beltway really carefully. But a lot of people just think, oh, superannuation changes, right? Uh, and and that, you know, I think the public can be a bit skittish on that. And it will be very interesting to see what the polls and the focus groups look like because maybe it's right that it's, it is, it's sufficiently narrowly um, targeted that most people will think that's okay and maybe that's a good thing. But we, we, we can't be can't be sure at the moment. I think you're right that the public is skittish about that. I mean, you saw Peter Dutton's tweet today saying he was off to a TV interview and some average Australians yelled out to him, don't let them come and take our super. I think, uh, yeah, this is enough to very much scare the horses when it comes to the general public, regardless of their knowledge of the actual detail. I do want to have, uh, I do have a theory that I want to test out on you both. It actually comes from my father-in-law, Neil, who is a retired accountant. Uh, he, he showed me the rules around early withdrawal of super on compassionate grounds. And the number of people who've been approved in recent years, I mean, this is under normal circumstances, not the pandemic policy. It is actually pretty hard to access your super early. A significant percentage of applicants get knocked back. Uh, I think a bit more than half are approved. It stays around 30,000 approved applications. I think in 21, 22, it was about $573 million. Anyway, the theory is, does this effectively save us in the long run in terms of welfare and health costs? Richard Dennis. Oh, I don't think so. Uh, and and let's, let's, let's hope it doesn't. I mean, do we want to have a public health system that looks after someone who falls down a flight of stairs? Do we want to look after a public health system and a welfare system that looks after someone who uh, gets struck down with an illness? Or do we want to say to people, hopefully you've got some money salted away and you can you can withdraw it? I think it really highlights that there's never been a clear and still isn't any clear understanding of what super's for. So we force people to put uh, their income into it. We say it's for retirement purposes. We used to say it was to take pressure off the age pension budget, but of course, most of the tax concessions go to people who are too rich to ever get the age pension. So the idea that we now want to turn it into a way to help people save for a home or deal with their medical expenses, look, it's, you know, we, we force people to do this 
I think we should have a very strong sense, and admittedly the government's trying to come up with an objective for superannuation. It's remarkable that something we spend this much money on for 30 years, we're still not sure what the objective is. Uh, but I don't think the objective is that it's a piggy bank in case something bad happens, because hopefully we've got a system that looks after people when something bad happens. What do you think, Judith? But do you we think don't. it breaks I mean, the I back of the burden? I seriously disagree. I mean, it is a, it's compulsory, super, uh, compulsory savings, right? And if you go and look at what those withdrawals are about, they're, for example, women having plastic surgery to reconstruct their breast after cancer. And Richard, you might say, oh, well, that should be available in the public health system. Believe me, it isn't. You know, you would have to wait, and as a woman I know about this as an example, you might have to wait four or five years to get breast reconstruction surgery, and in the meantime, you've got this appalling deformed chest. And you're telling me that people shouldn't be able to, to take their, mon their own money out? People have it for bariatric surgery where they are so obese that they probably won't make retirement. People have it for IVF, so they can't have children otherwise. You, you're telling me that people should be denied having children yeah, because I'm their money is locked up for retirement. It's I'm about dignified lives. I agree. It's not I about it's... dignified retirement. It's about dignified lives, Richard. Well, then I, I, what happens to the people who need breast reconstruction that don't have the money in super? But to be clear, i got no problem with the current arrangements that, as you say, do help people in that situation. My point is, I, I don't think we should open it up for more of that. We should, as a society, think, do we only want people with 30 grand uh, that they can withdraw to get this kind of support? Or do we want to help everybody? So well, I, I'm glad... It, 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 it presumably... Uh, you know, there is a waiting list and if some people can do this privately, it actually reduces pressure on the system. I mean, as you say, Andy, this is really tightly regulated and about half the applicants are actually uh, rejected. But this is people who kind of lost half their teeth and need, uh, you know, uh, dental implants or, or quite significant dental uh, reconstruction. Um, and again, you're not going to get that in the public system. And so... You know, I think given that it is a regulated system, this is a really important part of what I would regard as the social contract of a compulsory saving arrangement. For the record, and I'm reading from the early access provisions here, there are five main grounds of eligibility. Uh, there are things like palliative care, funeral expenses, preventing foreclosure or first sale of your home. On that medical treatment provision, though, uh, it does say to get compassionate release of super for medical treatment, you must have a life-threatening illness or injury, alleviate acute or chronic pain or alleviate acute or chronic mental illness. Just, just to provide that context. I do want to move on. Judith Sloan, economist and uh, columnist with the Australian newspaper and Richard Dennis, director of the Australia Institute are here. Uh, once again, the robo-debt Royal Commission has been riveting to watch this week. If you're watching it, we were lamenting with um, Rick Morton from the Saturday paper about how most people just sort of are tuned out, but when you're really focused, it is kind of jaw-dropping what's being revealed. With some startling omissions from Stuart Robert, who was the minister responsible for the botched debt recovery scheme in early 2019. Judith, what did you make of Stuart Roberts' defence yesterday that he was bound by Cabinet Solidarity and the Westminster system when he was making public statements about this scheme? Well, it all seemed to be, you know, don't blame me. I mean... The thing was fundamentally flawed. And I mean, if they'd asked someone, if they'd asked Richard or me actually about, 
how the labour market operates for people who are on um, welfare payments. We could have told them that it is basically a life of quite uncertain and itinerant work. And the idea that you could take a pay pack pay slip for two weeks and then multiply it by 26 and that gave people's income, that was absolute rubbish, which is sort of in simplified terms, that's what they did. And then they cross-matched that with welfare payments and said, oh, you owe the government a whole lot of money, at which point they wrote a, a really sort of nasty, unequivocal letter of demand to people. So it was the antithesis of good policy. Um, I mean, obviously, we don't want people to be claiming welfare payments when they're not entitled, but this was not the way to go. And... Uh, um, you know, I think <clears throat> Stuart Robert would have been better to actually admit that the government, both conceptually and in practice, made terrible mistakes. I mean, this idea of, I don't even know quite what he means by cabinet solidarity and why that was relevant to his answering the question. Well, it does. I mean, I think the average Australian has long questioned party politics for this very reason. And to have this on oath is kind of shocking. Richard, several listeners have questioned what the possible sanctions or consequences might be for Stuart Robert and other uh, former ministers, I should add. The coalition are no, no longer in government. So do you think Stuart Robert should resign? Oh, well, this is the ultimate irony that, that the whole premise of Westminster democracy is that the minister is responsible. And when was the last time in Australia a minister went, my bad, that happened on my watch, I'll have to resign. So to, to kind of... In, about well, 20 well, years ago. Long, yeah. Exactly. Well, thank you. It's a long time. So what a what a what an outrageous inversion of Westminster principle uh, for a former minister, rather than say I should have resigned at the time, to say no, no, I had an obligation to stay and lie about it. I mean, how absolutely ridiculous. Uh, and Judith and I are in furious agreement. In fact, I think I wrote an opinion piece in 2019. The minute I heard about income averaging and made exactly the point that Judith just made, and that is you, you are eligible for unemployment benefits or sickness benefits or disability payment, and they are evaluated on a fortnightly basis based on what you just earned. There is literally no capacity to use any form of uh, averaging over a year to sort of estimate whether people may or may not have been eligible for the fortnight or month or three months they got welfare from. Uh, and frankly, anyone that worked in the department must have known that. So, you know, let, there, let's be crystal but, but clear, the public service knew. Yeah. Oh, well, but don't you think there is also a story about the sort of gutting of the public sector and the fact that you actually didn't have people or sufficiently experienced and large enough team to be dealing with this. I mean, some of the people have appeared as witnesses and really they were being put under undue pressure in time and resource terms. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's not surprising that it really went A over T because really... You know, I mean, irrespective of the uh, incompetence and uh, motivations of the ministers, I don't think they were then being properly resourced. 
even if even with the best intentions. Which is, yeah, odd when you think about the uh, former Liberal government's penchant for outsourcing to the consultancy yeah. sector. I mean, uh, they'll want to get advice on anything except this. Uh, Judith Malcolm Turnbull is set to appear at the Royal Commission on Monday. This inquiry is really casting a very long shadow over the coalition and our two most recent uh, former prime ministers. How damaging is this to their respective legacies? Well, you know, I, 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 I never really, you know, understood the politics of it, really, because, look, I, no, I get there's the sort of, like, you know, we don't like doll bludges and the like, but you were never going to get at that facet from this sort of top-down uh, approach. And, and it seems to me that, you know, in many ways, I think Malcolm Turnbull was a very disappointing person because he is extremely intelligent and uh, possibly as intelligent as Richard and me. Um, and, you know... My I, phone's I about talking... to ring with Malcolm calling to get a correction on that. Don't worry about that. Uh, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, um, well, we're not all in the same room. Possibly, <laughs> good thing. Um, but, you know, it, it didn't take me very long to figure this out, that this was a stupid idea. Uh, just finally, in the time we've got remaining, uh, there, I do want to get your thoughts on joke that was aired on Channel 10's The Project during the week. It's really sort of riled people up, certainly people of faith, Christians and Muslims in particular. It wasn't even really particularly funny. I, I don't think I'll repeat it here. But it was basically riffing on the idea of Jesus being nailed to the cross. Uh, the program's host, Waleed Ali, and Sarah Harris were forced to offer an on-air apology the day after. That didn't really go down that well either. Uh, I've seen some Christians weighing in on this, saying that people of faith also have a sense of humour Richard, funny, not funny? Uh, look, not funny. Uh, I think we shouldn't overreact to it. Uh, I'm not a fan of cancel culture. Uh, it was a, I, I don't think it was a very funny joke and I don't think it's the end of the world. Judith, funny or not funny, that uh, joke on the project about Jesus being nailed to the cross? Well, I mean, I think there's a view that, again, that the program is possibly under-resourced. But if you kind of um, uh, invite some sort of out-of-control out comedian to interview then, uh, and Andy, you know this better than Richard and I, you know, you have to be really on your toes, don't you? So maybe it was unfortunate that they didn't react with the sort of, oh, well, we don't like to say those things. But again, you know, lighten up everyone, I would say. <laughs> A nice note to end the week on. It's great to have you both back on the radio together. Some agreement, some disagreement. I'm pretty happy with the balance. Judith Sloan, economist and a, a columnist with the Australian newspaper and Richard Dennis, director of the Australia Institute. Thank you so much for your time. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Thanks very much. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.